Welcome back to the FKT Podcast, brought to you by Merrill Test Lab. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today, we're chatting with Jack Kenzel, who just broke the supported round-trip FKT on Denali in Alaska. Join us to learn about the challenges, logistics, and intense training needed to pull off a complex, high-altitude mountain FKT. Thank you, Merrill, for supporting not only this podcast, but the fastestknowntime.com website and the FKT community. Merrill invites you to put yourself and their new Skyfire 2 shoe to the test on your next adventure. Check out their new Skyfire 2 shoe, Merrill's newest, lightest, and fastest trail running shoe over at Merrill.com. So for those that don't know, Denali is the high point of North America, as well as the United States, at 20,310 feet. Base camp, where the FKTs are measured from, is at 7,200 feet. And Jack recently set the supported Denali round trip from base camp FKT, taking over an hour off the previous record. So first, I want to kind of chat about the insane amount of training that goes into this, because (laughs) I was watching your Instagram all winter as you went up and down snowy mountains Uh and doing insane things and transitioned into the spring where you did FKTs on two major volcanoes, Shasta and Rainier. So I would love to hear kind of like your overall training plan and maybe a little bit about those experiences on Shasta and Rainier in preparation for Denali. Basically, the idea was I was going to get out and uh, live at altitude. That was like a big focus of mine. So prior to racing Shasta in April, I lived at least 8,500 feet since about early December. And it's just like the studies on like long-term impacts of living at altitude are like super nascent. They're like, aren't very good. So, I mean, I just figured more time at altitude was better. And general kind of like training architecture, like I kind of held the volume constant since, I mean, I've held the volume constant for a while, probably since like last November-ish, like at about 24 hours of moving time per week. And initially in December and I think through like February or March, I was just doing like one speed session per week and I was dropping down to like... I would always drop down to do that. I always do that around like 4,000 feet or so. And then starting in like, I guess probably late February, I added a second speed session every week and I would do one session kind of above 8,000 feet and I do one session at 4,000 feet. And then after Rainier, or sorry, after Shasta and like mid-April prepping for Rainier, I came out to Colorado to live a little bit higher. I was kind of living in Breck, sleeping up. Initially, I tried sleeping up at Hoosier Pass, which is like 11.6, but I couldn't sleep well because all the road noise up there. So I started sleeping in the Quandary Trailhead parking lot there at 10.8, and I was doing lots of stuff up above 10,000 feet, and I was doing all my speed work. At that point, I was doing it all at 9,500 feet. Yeah, that was kind of like the general kind of overview as far as like what the speed work looked like. Initially, it was like all machines and then like Stairmaster and treadmill. And then I started adding in some more kind of like specific outdoor work prior to Shasta. So I was just going to Mammoth and just doing some, I would do like the altitude, the session at altitude, I would do on skis at Mammoth, just going up in the resort. And then once I came to Colorado, I would have kept continuing doing that, but like I don't know. It was just kind of hard. Like it was just hard to find conditions outdoors to do speed work. I find doing conditions kind of like in doing speed work in the backcountry to be kind of hard. And you really have to like prep a course and put in a skinner and booter. And I just wasn't really doing that. And so I was doing all my speed work at that point on uh, Stairmaster and uh, Incline Treadmill prior to immediately prior to Rainier and Denali. So I know 
skiing was obviously a big part of this. When you talk about your training, were you mostly skiing or were you mixing between skiing and like booting and being on foot? Yeah. So in my training, I think it pretty much, I mean, I wouldn't really pick objectives based off. The problem was, is like the Sierra got so much snow this winter. Things were like pretty unstable in the Alpine for a lot of the season. So I did a lot of laps just like right above town, right above Mammoth, like in the Sherwins, just like in the trees, which was driving me crazy a little bit. But as far as the speed work, yeah, I'd, I would try to prep for like all the modalities I'd be doing during these F speed efforts. So like Shasta is like pretty evenly split between skinning and booting. Rainier is like two thirds skinning and a third booting. And then Denali is yeah, pretty evenly split between skinning and booting. And so, yeah, my speed work, I would do like incline treadmill at like 25, 30% with ankle weights to kind of simulate skinning. And I would use like a, a long kind of like stride, like I was skinning. skinning. The only thing I didn't do was like try to put like a tennis ball or something on the bottom of a pole and like use that on the incline treadmill. I never did that, but that would have been something probably to try in the future. And then the Stairmaster, I would, sometimes I would throw on ankle weights. Sometimes I wouldn't, I probably would be better off with like an ankle weight that was like a, a little bit more than a, like a pound and a half to kind of like replicate my boots instead of like two and a half pound ones I would use to replicate my boots and skis. And yeah, I would do those Stairmaster workouts to kind of replicate booting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty serious mountain. So, and very mixed. So I was just kind of curious, like what your training looked like as far as it break down. There was also like beyond just like the pure physical training. There was also the like training and kind of like in steep skiing. Really, that was like the main technical skill I needed. I needed for Denali was like steep skiing and then in glacier travel. So as far as the steep skiing, yeah, I would just try to get out in the Sierra as much as I could and ski like as steep lines as I could. And the Sierra is like a good place to train for Denali because there is a lot of steep skiing there. And then there also is a ton of like super firm, like whim hammered conditions was not quite as was Denali was more firm than I had ever experienced, but at least this year it got close. And then as far as the glacier travel, it's a little bit tricky because to really get a ton of experience in glacier travel, I would have had to go up to the Pacific Northwest. And I just really wasn't really willing to go to see live, live at sea level. So that was kind of a weak point, but that was... When I went and scouted Rainier, I worked on that a lot as much as I could and kind of the time right before then. And then actually on Denali, fortunately, Nathan Longhurst has done a ton of that. So we worked on that also. And I mean, actually on the day of, there wasn't a ton of like, it was just the skill you needed was just like step, step around the giant holes in the ground. But that's not much like, of a skill. It was like giant hole, go around. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Unfortunately, it didn't end up being that important on the day I raced it, but yeah, getting up on the route. And certainly I got lucky with having, I mean, I didn't really, it wasn't really luck. I mean, I picked doing the route when I did partially because I knew there was going to be so much traffic and because crevasses would be identified. But yeah, that was it. Yeah. I mean, crevasse trails, glacier travel is very important. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you immediately after your FKT spent a lot of time updating the Denali FKT page, gathering <laughs> data and standardizing it, which was really funny to watch. Like you immediately are like, I'm going to standardize this. So can you give our listeners maybe a brief history and overview of the records and style for Denali's FKTs and also how your recent FKT compares and stacks up? Yeah, no, this is like 
one of the main things that I'm really happy to have accomplished on this was for some reason, like Denali and a lot of higher mountains, people just like haven't been terribly clear with style. And like, I'm sure gonna, I'm going to regret saying that, but because I kind of like, <laughs> I just, I don't really do a lot of research and then I just like start speaking. But um, like Denali really, I can say for Denali specifically, it really bothered me because like there was not much information on like what style people used and like proper verification for pretty much everybody who'd raced on it. Like there just wasn't, and the information certainly hadn't been consolidated on the website. So as it was before I raced it, the website was just like, it was like Denali FKT. Oh, yeah. And it's like, Denali is a mountain that's like really big. And then below it's like <laughs> Carl's name and then like a link to like a news article. And like, that's like, that was pretty much it. And so, yeah, so I don't know. I believe there were two guys who did it Denali in 24 hours or something back in like the 1970s or something like maybe I'm completely crazy. But and then I think Alex Lowe had an ascent record at some point, like 18 and a half hours that I think he probably set around like 1995 ish or so. And then the first like well documented record was Chad Kellogg's, I think in 2003. And I'd have to look exactly what Chad did. I don't really know off the top of my head. It's in on the page now, yeah. but. Chad, I believe, used skis from the airstrip to 14 camp and then booted the upper mountain. And I think his style was kind of more maximal supported. I think there was, he like put, he staged some food at 14 camp and it got like buried in a storm or something. And then, so he got food off other people and blah, blah, blah. And so, and Chad's was also Mark Westman, kind of like a, a legend ranger up there kind of helped to verify Chad's record. And Chad did yeah. go through some lengths to have, make sure it was verified and recorded properly. And then I believe next off the top of my head was Ed Warren from New Hampshire. And his, I'm not really, he used to have a blog post about it that was online. I think his website has since been, I don't know, taken down or he took it down or something. And Ed did like kind of proper ski style all the way up, all the way down. I'm pretty sure he skied off the summit when he did it. And there's a pretty good news article that has a ton of details about Ed's attempt. And I think that was 2013. And then the next year, Killian went. And so Killian did it. So interestingly enough, I don't really know why Ed did this, but Ed did not touch the fixed lines on the route. So from about, let me think, like probably like 15.5 to 16.2 or so on the route, on the normal West Buttress route that most people climb, there is a section of fairly steep, I don't know, 45 degree blue ice and national parks maintains fixed ropes that go up and down that section of blue ice. And so that's always been kind of a point with the record. At least it has been for recently. So Ed, I think was the first not to touch those lines. I don't know if Chad touched them, but Ed just soloed up and down the ice, like directly parallel to the lines, I think. And then when Killian went and did it, Killian was like very adamant about his style. So like Killian only took, he carried all of his gear. He only took water at 14 camp. And he also went up and down Rescue Gully, which is a kind of a cool water that kind of parallels the fixed lines almost. And yeah, I think the only you know, thing that's noteworthy about Killian's effort is he, I think he had quite bad weather during it. I'm not really sure how bad it was, but. I know some people who were on the mountain that day told me that they were just like hunkered down in their tents at 14 camp the day that Killian went for it. So that certainly affected his time. 
And then Carl Egloff went and raced it. And so Carl was the first that I'm aware of that didn't use skis at all on the entire effort. So, oh wow. And Carl sent me kind of exactly what support he took and what his style was. And that's on the site right now. But Carl, I would say definitely was on the maximal kind of end of support and of the style. So he snowshoed up to 14 camp. I'm not sure if he carried all of his gear to 14 or not. That's on the website. And then he, I believe he cashed snowshoes there. He, I think he switched his shoes out. He booted to the summit and back. And then he left a bunch of gear at 14. And then he just like ran down, I think slick essentially, possibly in the snowshoes back down to the airstrip. But I know he got water and some other like assistance on the upper mountain. So a different style there. And so Killian had gone round trip, I believe in 1148. And then Carl, there seems to be some sort of, I don't know why, but there seems some sort of disagreement about how fast each of them went. Killian did it in 2014. And I don't even know if he recorded it on a watch or anything. That data doesn't exist. And Carl, he did like an 11.44 and he did give me his data. And so that's also on the website now at GPX and a like Sun 2 moves count for him. And then, yeah, I just followed Killian style. So I booted Rescue Gully and I only took water at 14 camp. And I think that's the only style if you're doing this round trip for time. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I think the only way to kind of improve on the style that Killian and I did was to take is to take no water at 14, which I didn't really think was possible, but I do certainly now. I think the way you could do it is just like throw some boiling water in a Nalgene and then just like add it to a soft, add it to another bottle and add snow to it on the way up. And I think you can mm-hmm. kind of like, I think it would slow you down a little bit, but I think it is conceivable. So yeah, I carried all my own food, all my own gear all the way up, all the way down. Yeah. So the only thing I had was I I had tailwind staged at 14. And initially I told my buddy, Emmanuel Ross, I was like, Hey, just like mix this with some of the water. And then later I was like, Oh, I don't want to, I want to carry all my own food. So don't mix it. And he didn't get that message. So I got up there and I like went to pour powder into it and it already had powder in it. So technically I did take tailwind at 14, but I hauled those calories up and down the mountain and I had to add it to some of the water anyways. So, so yeah, that's kind of the, that's kind of the deal. So. And there's also, just to add one other thing, in 2017, I think maybe, Katie Bono, I'm not sure the history of the women's record before then, but she established, I think possibly established the women's record at about 21 hours. And off the top of my head, I can't remember any kind of details about her effort, but it's in a news article. It's linked on the site. Awesome. Thank you so much for that overview. It is kind of crazy that it was not at all detailed prior I just here's a mountain somebody update it <laughs> i think peter actually said that on there like in one of the comments on the site it's like somebody can do this somebody else would update this yeah yeah no for sure and i wish they had been more not more firm with carl but like i'm pretty sure based on looking at it that somebody else added carl's effort to the site and i mm-hmm. wish they just like had reached out to him or i wish his gpx data and everything else had been on the site because like Personally, like I was kind of suspicious of his effort and I know a number of other people were because it like wasn't verified on there. So yeah, no. Yeah. All right. So Denali is a very complex mountain to say the least. So I would love it if you could just talk us through the setup to even start this FK, like your, your FKT, this permits, your arrival there, how you moved gear, established camp, 
all of these things because this is a serious mountaineering effort. And then also maybe a little bit about what happened to your climbing partner, Zach. <laughs> yeah. I know that was like a big thing pretty early on when you got there. Yeah. So basically the hardest, one of the cruxes of doing this is like 60 days out, you have to have applied for your permit. Otherwise you can't go up there. So the national parks maintains access to the mountain and at least 60 days from when you want to go on the mountain, you have to submit to the national park service, like some paperwork. It's really not all that complicated. And you have to pay a fee of like, I think it was $420 is what I had to pay per person. Then you fly into Alaska and you go to Talkeetna, which is kind of the closest town basically to the mountain. And there, there's a ranger station where you just have to like conduct a brief with the rangers and they go over the route and like waste disposal and marking caches and not terribly exciting. And then, yeah, you fly onto the mountain. And so a very big problem with this effort and why I personally would probably never go back to contest this one again is just because like the weather can get, there's like so many instances where the weather can like dramatically affect how things go. And it, it starts when you're in Talkeetna trying to fly to base camp. And there were like end of May, there was a group that was stuck. I mean, there were people that were stuck on the lower glacier at base camp and in Talkeetna trying to go either direction for, I think, six days. So certainly like there haven't been a ton of studies, again, done on acclimatization in this kind of category, but I think there's a good chance that you would lose a lot of your adaptations just sitting in Talkeetna and oh, yeah. waiting waiting for a window to fly onto the mountain. So that was a big concern for me. I only got delayed in Talkeetna about 24 hours because of weather, which is, I mean, some people fly on immediately, but I consider that pretty lucky. And so, uh, yeah, so because a lot of people acclimatize on the mountain and because like weather windows are so kind of fickle, a lot of people take, typically people take a lot of supplies up because really it's a kind of a climbing preamble and then you go and like camp at 14,000 feet until you get a window and that can be quite long and then you go and you climb the upper mountain and so typically people carry stuff in sleds and so you're combined like when we left Telkeetna you have to like weigh with the air service there and our weight when we weighed in was like combined between Zach and I was like 335 pounds like gear and food alone and yeah. we didn't have our fuel yet, yeah. but we also like left some gear and a cache like at the airstrip. So probably about 330, 340 pounds of stuff between the two of us. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's really hard hauling that stuff up in many ways. Like that was like the hardest physical stuff that we did was hauling that gear up just yeah. to 14,000 feet. And uh, so just as an overview of the route, you have the airstrip, you go down yeah. 500 feet, you have five miles of basically flat until you get to seven, eight so camp at 7,800 feet. And then you have like generally fairly low angle terrain. There's like one pretty flat section between 96 and 10, six, but generally it's probably about like 20 to 30 degrees all the way up to 14,000 foot camp. And on that, you kind of have two kind of cruxes. There's like squirrel hill which is a, again, a low angle hill, but it's like you're side hilling and there's like an enormous cliff below you and it can be quite firm and icy there. And with a super heavy sled, like it would be quite deadly if you fell there. And then there's also a windy corner, which kind of similarly is just, it's actually just a horizontal uh, traverse on like a little like one foot wide kind of path of snow. 
And again, that's over kind of like yeah, a little bit of exposure over like quite a few crevasses. So yeah, so yeah. Zach and I took like a pretty, a quite aggressive schedule. Typically like guided groups, I think will take five to six days to make it to 14 camp. And we did it in what, two nights? Yeah, three days. So we slept the first night at 8,900 feet, just in the middle of, just on the side of the track, just kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then we slept the second night at 11,000 foot camp which is kind of notorious for having the worst weather on the mountain. And then we kind of slept at 14,000 foot camp and 14 camp kind of sits above the typical kind of cloud deck. So normally it is quite, the weather is quite nice there and it isn't, the wind is kind of, kind of sheltered from the wind by the upper mountain. And so obviously I had been living at altitude for a long time. Zach had been sleeping in my hypoxico tent in Maine. 10,000 feet. And then he had spent a couple days in Peru at like 11 to 14,000 feet before he came on a mountain biking trip. So yeah, we pushed pretty aggressively to 14. Zach was having some issues with the altitude, but like, honestly, both of us were unaware that like you could actually get like that bad AMS at 14 camp. But uh, yeah, that's what ended up happening. So we spent, Zach and I spent one night there and then the next night, Zach was feeling quite poorly and it was kind of manifesting with some like cognitive difficulties, honestly, which was pretty concerning. I think what happened was is Zach never had trouble breathing. And so I think he picked up like some adaptations from the hypoxico tent, which like maybe helped him breathe. But he, I think with one of the problems that you get at altitude, one of the most dangerous things that can happen at altitude is haste, high altitude cerebral edema. And I believe it's just like your brain just kind of fills with fluid. And I think he was kind of approaching that. And I think the tent didn't really prepare him well for that. So we descended that night. So this was the night of 28 May. We descended to 11,000 feet and I stayed with him overnight. And then I returned to 14 on the 29th. And on the morning of the 30th, he was still feeling quite poorly. And so I took him down to the airstrip and he flew out. So yeah, no, that was pretty much that. And I ended up racing on June 5th. So Okay. And Zach is okay now that he's... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's fine. But I mean, there was someone this season who actually died up there of cerebral edema. So I believe is what it was and not... The other is the other that is dangerous is pulmonary edema. Right. And so I I believe it was... I think it's probably common for both to happen simultaneously, but uh, I'm not sure which he was afflicted with, but yeah, it was fatal. So... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of people don't especially with the cerebral edema, they don't recognize the symptoms because everybody knows, oh, hey, pulmonary edema, I'm coughing up blood. Like, that's an obvious, but the disorientation and stuff is easy to just blame on just being tired or fatigued or whatever. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times it gets missed. Yeah. So what's that approximate distance like to 14 camp from the airstrip? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the total distance for my record burn was like 34 miles. And I want to say it's, 13 miles from the airstrip to 14 okay. camp. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I didn't realize Denali was like that low angle. Like I, yeah, that's like a well, significantly longer trip than I thought. Well, certainly. I mean, this is the easiest, I mean, this is one of the easiest routes to get up, basically mm-hmm. the easiest route to get up. And uh, so that's kind of why it takes this long, mm-hmm. low angle kind of like traversing way. There are some very steep ways to get up, but yeah, no, it's like when you actually go for it, it's like, A lot of people do, some people do go to the summit from 14 and really all you're doing is like going to the summit from 14 with like a, a a relatively trivial kind of like preamble to it, to get there and back. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because like, I mean, I've climbed Rainier and I'm like used to being like, okay, you just go up <laughs> and then you're like, yeah, it's really short and intense. So oh, I would say, honestly, on. like when you chop the initial glacier bit, the initial five miles, I would say the bit from seven, eight camp to 14 camp is like quite similar to like a longer version of like paradise to Camp Muir. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's pretty similar to that. that yeah, makes sense. All right. Yeah. So how long were you on the mountain total before you ended up attempting your FKT or doing? So I flew on May 25th, I believe. And then I did it on June 5th. And in there, I think I know I, I spent, I think, seven nights at 14 camp. Okay. So, All right. Yeah. And like, did you, how did you pick the time? Like, when did you know yeah. it was time to go? Yeah, so I told Michael Hutchins, who guides up there, like we were talking on like probably June 2nd. And I told him like I was going to wait until June 12th. I, if I had a perfect day before June 12th, then I would go for it. And and then after June 12th, I was just going to take whatever I could get. But one concern I started to have is even being there like in early June, I felt like the number of people were starting to like drop off a little bit. And my concern was if you had less people on the mountain, like when we first got up there, there was like a really nice track up the mountain because everyone tows these sleds and it puts in like a really nice track you can skin in. And then the booters are all really good. The crevasses are all identified. There's a track going through everything. And so my concern was the later I waited in June, the less people that would be on the mountain and the more time it would take until a track was put in after a storm. And a lot of times like, I think to race this record at some point on the route, you're going to have inclement weather like, like I did. So it maybe it's a question of like how much of the route is going to have a track in it. Cause you know, hopefully if there's a storm actively going, maybe someone's actively traveling through that terrain. That was one concern. And then another concern was the lower glacier breaks up later in June. Fortunately this year it was so the weather was like so stormy down low that the lower glacier was super fat and they're like, Number one, there wasn't much danger of falling in a crevasse. And then number two, the route between the airstrip and 7-8 camp was enormously direct. Because later in the season, it has to like swerve around all the crevasses. And so Michael told me that was the fastest he'd ever gone from the airstrip to camp one. And he told me one time they summited on July 5th. And to go from camp one to the airstrip, so technically downhill, it took him 20 hours. Whereas oh, like geez. to go up, yeah, to go uphill... On like May 31st or so, it took three hours yeah. with a guided group, which he said was the fastest he'd ever seen. So I yeah. wanted to go like while the route was also quite direct. So basically what happened was, is like my goal for the time before I went for the record was to acclimatize, was to see the upper mountain and was to put in a safe route through the crevasses in Rescue Gully because Rescue Gully isn't on the typical ascent route. There isn't as much traffic. So I wanted to have a good firm booter that was also safe through the crevasses. And so I was in the process of putting that route in and it was just slower than I was kind of hoping. And then on June 4th, there was a really nice weather window. And on June 5th, there was a really nice weather window. And so I was kind of thinking like, damn, like I want a two day window because I want people to put in a booter on the whole mountain and everything. And I was June 4th, I was going to put in a route in Rescue Gully. And then June 5th, I was going to go on the summit on a scouting run. And then about midday, June 4th, I was kind of dragging my feet and I saw three people booting Rescue Gully. And so I was like, oh, wow, like they're going to put in a track. I don't need to do it. And if I race tomorrow, then there'll probably be a good track in Rescue Gully. So 
I texted a couple guides. I texted like Mark Postal and I was, you know, who's guided up there for like 18 years. And he like looked at the weather and he's like, yeah, you should go for it right now. So I've talked to a number of people and uh, I mean, it seems like there's actually a good window up there. I kind of, right now, I kind of torture myself and keep looking at the forecast up there <laughs> to see if I could have waited and acclimatized longer. But yeah, it's just really hard to say. And I talked to a number of people and they said I like threaded the only weather window for like the next week. Uh, so yeah, so that's, so basically, yeah, at night of June 4th, I skied down to the airstrip and then slept down there. So yeah. I mean, I feel like when you're on a mountain like that, when you have the weather window, you go like you don't just like hope for another one. Yeah, no, for sure. And like a big problem with it is like the record starts at 7000 feet and goes all the way up to 20. And so I was trying to figure out ways I could optimize for weather on the other sections of the route. And it's like almost impossible. Like the weather, the weather you really want is like, like a cloud deck right at like 13,000 feet or so. Mm -hmm because you want the lower part of the route to be in the clouds, especially the part below about 8,000 feet, because if that section is like baking in the sun, which I never experienced this, but I think it could get extremely soft down there. And I was just kind of imagining, number one, your chance of falling through a crevasse goes way up. And then right. number two, like I was imagining like Rainier and how soft Rainier got at the bottom. And I was mm -hmm. like, damn, like if it was that soft in the lower glacier, like it could be impossible to cross it. So like, you could go up super firm in the morning and then come down and just get basically stuck at 7-8 camp going for the record. So that was another concern of mine. Unfortunately, I got lucky and it stayed it stayed cloudy down low. Yeah. So I, when I talked to people, they were like, hey, you have to just optimize for weather above 17,000 feet because like good windows don't come very often up there. And whatever happens down low is just you just got to deal with it. So Right, right. Yeah, it sounds like you got pretty lucky with the weather, so good. Yeah, I know for sure. Did you have any gear issues? No, zero. That's really amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, basically, like, unfortunately for these efforts, like, like for, ski, for the ski boots, for the carbon boots that I use, I get, like, one record out of, like, a $1,600 pair of boots. And I don't have to, like... I mean, I would love to have someone who actually knows carbon boots, like look at the boots. I need to like see how damaged they actually are, but at least like the lower shells are fine on all my boots that I use for Shasta, Rainier, Denali. I used a different pair of boots for each, but the cuffs on all of them are like damaged to some degree just because like ski edge is hitting them or they just crack under the forces or whatever else. So yeah, no, that's a result of just like spending way too much money on equipment and like using wow. new gear because like, yeah, yeah, it's just, it just gets destroyed. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So we've talked a lot about altitude and acclimatization. Do you feel like you were acclimatized enough? Did you end up having any altitude issues when you were on the upper mountain, like when you're on your FKT? No, not well, not really. But um, it's like I never know what kind of like better could look like. I would love to like run the simulation of like me staying at 14 camp for a month and sleeping some at seven because I was sleeping great at 14. Like I think I could even slept at 17 camp and like kind of seen what happened up there. But uh, when I got to the summit, I was like very kind of, I felt like very addled. My brain kind of felt like mush and my legs just kind of felt like noodles. But like, I don't know to what extent that would have been any better if I had acclimatized more. I don't know if I would have like adapted at all. So no, yeah, it's tough to say. As it was, yeah, I spent seven days at 14 camp. I went up to 17 one time and I did not sleep up there. So possibly, I don't know if I had gone, I doubt like, 
I, if I'd gone to the summit, it really would have improved things all that much. I think if anything, what I needed was probably just like more oxygen carrying capacity or something. I'm not really sure. And I think that would have taken a while to kind of happen. And it probably would have just come from a lot of time just at 14. Right. Um, right. But yeah. yeah, I mean, as it was like, I was sleeping at 11, probably let's say like a solid three weeks prior and sleeping right. at 84 since December. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good that you didn't have any issues up on the upper mountain. Like, I mean, that's pretty high altitude, no matter what you've been doing to acclimatize. So yeah, I know for sure. For sure. So we talked a lot about the lower mountain and kind of what that's like. Can you talk a little bit, describe kind of what the upper mountain, what the route was like getting to the summit? Like, Yeah. yeah. So basically, once you leave 14 camp, there's like from like 14 to probably 16 flat, the route is shared with the approach to the fixed lines. And so I was like super, super lucky. And these three guys, right. so basically... When I came, uh, like 13.5, I looked up and I saw these three guys booting Rescue Gully. And I was like so, so happy because, I mean, I didn't really know. I didn't even realize how important it was until I got up there. But basically, these three guys, they skinned up to the base of Rescue Gully. And they put in, I mean, genuinely, like the best skinner I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I mean, skin tracks get like blown out over time. And like, I've always thought like five people is like the optimum number of people to like have on a skin track before you hit it, like three to five people before it starts getting destroyed. And yeah, these three guys put in like the most perfect skin track to the base of rescue. And then they booted it. And what was interesting was I thought I was off their track and I was on the booter from yesterday. But once I got to the top, I realized there was only one booter and that their booter, like within minutes of them booting it, like filled in with spin drift. And I talked to them and they told me that like the booters from the previous day had completely filled in. So if they hadn't been there, I mean, that probably would have added 45 minutes. And on top of that, their first guy fell on a crevasse as he was going up and they were trying to like figure that route out. So it would not have been very safe to just to like try and on site boot that more or less without a booter. And so, yeah, so once you, so basically it's a skin track. And then it's like 40 degree, 35 degree, 40 degree snow field through some, a couple of fairly open crevasses, like two really open crevasses and a couple of hidden ones up to the base of Rescue Gully proper. And then Rescue Gully proper is probably about 300 feet. And it's like, I don't know what, it's fairly narrow and it's like 45, maybe it like kisses 50, but I kind of doubt it. And then you top that out and immediately rejoin the route from the fixed lines, the traditional West Buttress line, right at about 17 camp. So Rescue Gully does actually cut off a bit of the rest of the West Buttress. And I think with a good boot pack, it is actually a bit faster. So from 17 camp, the route goes down probably about 70, 80 feet. And then is the Autobahn, which is kind of like the crux of the West Buttress and the site of the most fatalities. And it's like, a, I don't even know how long it is. I don't know if it's like a mile, maybe less of just like a slowly rising traverse goes from 17 to 18 two. And yeah, it's just kind of like a side hill on like extremely firm snow. My estimate is like any guided party will protect it on these like fixed pickets that the NPS installs up there. And I mean, a lot of people do protect it with a rope. And then 818.2 is Denali Pass. And then the route just kind of goes up. I don't know what it is, probably like 30 degrees maybe slightly steeper, switchbacks up, kind of like a ridge almost, 
And then it just kind of gets into some kind of more or less kind of rolling terrain. And then you go over one roll and then you go down probably about 60 feet. And then you have a flat section called the football field. And then there's like the proper summit plug thing called the Cahiltna horn. And uh, that the Cahiltna horn was like way steeper than I kind of expected it to be in my mind. And uh, I don't know actually how steep it is. It's probably maybe it's 40. It's like high thirties at least. And uh, the route kind of goes up the looker's right side of the horn. And uh, so at this point, you're probably at about like 19.5. And the route goes up the looker's right side of this big kind of like ridge feature. And uh, it tops out the ridge and then it traverses this like very exposed ridge line for probably about 150 yards. And to your right, I don't even know what that would be. Is that like the, I guess it'd be like the south face maybe of Denali. And it's like a... 10, I don't know how far you'd slide, 8,000 feet or something vertically. A long, long way. There. A long way. Past like 2,000 feet, probably stops mattering much. But right. uh, yeah, you'd go a long distance. And then to the left, you have like, you would just fall down the Cahiltna Horn, which is like, I don't know, 800, nah, like 600, 700 feet, maybe a little bit less. And then, yeah, there's like the summit. And the summit like isn't that big. It's like actually quite small. Kind of surprised me. I thought it was going to be some like big wide open patch. Yeah, and it's just like a little like bump on the ridge with like a little like brass marker. Yeah, and it was kind of funny when I got there. There was like, yeah, there was nobody else there. So, yeah, that's and the route. I would say it's interesting above seventeen thousand. Like, it's really hard to prepare for having not been there because it's like all these weird features that we like never see in the lower forty-eight, where it's like these huge like wind sculpted kind of like snow and it's like gets quite steep in like localized areas and there's like these four or five foot wind lips that are kind of weird that can kind of like cliff you out a little bit i mean yeah it's just kind of bizarre it's like in the snow is like was at least when i was there was like ridiculously firm do you know if that's normal or is it or do you think that was unusual i think it's yeah no i think that's quite normal i mean i've talked to some people i've talked to teague holmes it's like the only person i've talked to who had like really good ski conditions up there and i think that's quite unusual i think it's possible like May 27th or so, when I when we first got to the night we got to 14 camp, there was much more snow up on the upper mountain and it kind of, it did get stripped off in a huge wind event. There was a, that was the biggest problem as far as conditions for my effort is there was like a huge wind event, like around June 3rd that stripped a ton of snow off of some like pretty key areas of the route. So I feel like your FKT is like, only half of the story here because you lugged 350 however many pounds of gear up onto this mountain so you ski all the way back down to 7200 feet and then what happens because you have to get this stuff off the mountain yeah Yeah, no so it was funny like even when i think when i was coming across the lower glacier i was already starting to think like oh god like tomorrow i'm gonna have to come back up this (laughs) (laughs) way worse than coming back up it that was going back down it but um Yeah. So I got done and it was like a pretty bad, it was like the worst post-race experience I've ever had in my entire life because I finished and I just go back to my like tiny bivy tent that I was borrowing and I like cook some horrible dehydrated meal. And then I just like go in my tent and just like text people on the inReach and I just like laid down and then I slept for like six hours kind of poorly, like how I, after, how I always do after these things. And then, yeah, I got up and I, it was sunny and I was like concerned about the lower glacier melting. And so I was like, oh God, I got to get out of here. And so, yeah, I got up. I didn't even eat anything. I just like, this is like, <laughs> this is so horrible even remembering it. And I just like threw a bunch of bars in my bag 
And then um, I, I had broken kind of like my daily driver boots that I'd taken up there. I'd broken them the previous day or two, the two days before the day I was skiing down to the airstrip. And so I just took my race setup and I went back up to 14, which it's like 8,000 feet of climbing because you have to go, you have to go down some at the start and then come mm -hmm. back up. And honestly, that was not the worst part, but I got up there. And so Nathan Longhurst had just single pushed to the Cassine Ridge, which was like a rock route up there. And so that took him like 32 hours, which he didn't. So he didn't sleep for like one night. And then he got back at 4 a.m. that morning and he had slept until like 11. And so we linked and then we had to like break down camp. And the other problem with Zach leaving is like already we brought up a ton of food because I was like planning on staying there for a while for the record. And mm -hmm. I didn't have Zach consuming the food. And on top of that, like all the, whenever a group is leaving 14 and they have extra food, they always try to give it away and they always try to right. give away their white gas, their fuel also. And so like, because we didn't know how long we'd be up there, like we took everybody's food and fuel that was leaving and we had so much food. It was unbelievable. And on compounding that further is like, we had all of Zach's, a lot of Zach's gear we had to take down. And on top of that, like, because the weather the previous day had been so good everybody had summited and everybody had already like given away their food. So you had like less people at 14 camp because everyone was leaving. And then you had all these people leaving already giving away their food. And so no one wanted our food. So is it possible and... you actually took more off the mountain than you brought up the mountain? <laughs> I think it's, I think it is totally possible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Big, especially because like we went up. So we started with three gallons of white gas because like Manuel and Nathan were running low. So we grabbed an extra gallon for them. And when I came down between Nathan and I, we had four gallons of white gas. So we certainly, I certainly took off more gas than we, when we went up with. Yeah. I mean, we tried to give away stuff. Fortunately, we got rid of one gallon of white gas. So that was eight pounds. And then like a giant thing of hummus, and like a ton of cheese we got rid of. So, but that was, yeah, that was pretty, pretty bad. And so then we packed up all our stuff and like my sled was like, and Nathan's sled was like so overloaded. They were like mounted with gear. Like most people have like one giant duffel, but I had Zach's giant duffel also. So I had like two duffels stacked on top of each other. And then I had like all this garbage stopped on top of that. And then like other backpacks like attached to the outside. And so, yeah, so I got up there at 2 PM. It took seven hours to break down the camp and like dig our tents out and everything. And then 9 PM, we started descending and I was very scared about descending Squirrel Hill with a sled because it was so icy and because we had stuff weighed so much. And like, if you, tr you know, trip there and you have this sled is pulling you downhill, like if you're going to get like thrown off of this like enormous cliff. And so that was quite frightening for me. I just like, we had, I mean, we had crampons on obviously. And I just like, I had one ax with me and I just like faced into the slope and down climbed with this mm -hmm. giant sled on relatively low angle terrain. It was kind of ridiculous, but yeah. I just did not feel safe standing up. Yeah. Nathan stood up for most of it. And then Nathan, like he's probably only of a handful of people who have like single push to the casino solo like that on site, especially with skis on his back. And yeah. he said the scariest moment in the hardest moment of his entire trip was windy corner when he was on this like icy traverse with the sled and one of his crampons popped off his oh, foot God. somehow. And oh. he like, I mean, he didn't, I don't think he fell, but he kind of like arrested with his ax and then he yeah. like had to get it back on. And like, it's so terrifying with the sled. Like if it was a pack, it would be no problem, but this, right. you have a, the pack on also. Yeah. And uh, no, I, I was up ahead and like, I was waiting for him and I started to walk back up and then all of a sudden he just walked around the corner 
And I was like, well, hopefully you would have waited for me to come and help you if it was really bad. And he's like, no, I just would have fallen. I should have, <laughs> he was like, I should have taken the whip into the crevasse. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah. So Nathan and I, and then as we were going down, like at like, well, we had more food cashed at 11. We had to dig up oh, and add up to our stuff. And then, uh, yeah, between like 10, five and nine, five where the weather is always horrible. Yeah. We like went through like just basically a blizzard. It was just awful. Yeah, it was brutal. Nathan had like a mental breakdown from like lack of sleep and like crashing his sled and hurting his knee. And I so don't then blame I just, him. Like, yeah. And then I persuaded him. I just like told him, I was like, hey, just like take a nap. Yeah. And so he just like laid down in the snow and like snow was like blowing all over his face and everything. And he slept for five minutes and then he just like woke up on his own accord and he was like totally fine. <laughs> so, so yeah. So then, yeah, it took us, we got to the airstrip at 5 a.m. and uh, set up our tents and went to sleep and we slept for like two hours. And then we got up and like packed up all of our stuff to get on the plane and then flew out of there. So yeah, thank God we got yeah. out of there that day. I think I would have lost my mind. Well, at least you would have had uh, enough food. Yeah. yeah, we certainly would have had enough food. And believe it or not, like I, I mean, my, my, my camper is just a total disaster. Cause I still like, I mean, I just, the problem was, is like, I mean, I have Zach's stuff. And the other problem is like, I had to order so much gear for this trip, like pots and pans and bags and all this other stuff and I just don't know I just don't have anywhere to put it and also I have yeah. all these like freeze-dried meals let her left <laughs> I, I was gonna have. say are you gonna be eating your leftover Denali food for the rest of the summer yeah well the worst was not the worst but the funniest was Nathan when we were at 14 camp and like I'd go to give something away he's like no he's like I'll eat that back in California it's <laughs> like oh Jesus okay yeah let's just haul that down from 14,000 feet then <laughs> oh god that's funny yeah. oh yeah. man so do you have any other stories or anecdotes or anything else you'd like to share about this before we say goodbye? No, I think one thing that's kind of funny is like I I started, the weather was so good on the day that I went that uh, I started in a like grid fleece hoodie and a pair of heated tights, which were just like turned off and a pair of heated socks that were turned off. And the only thing I really needed to put on the whole day was a pair of mittens. That was oh, wow. it. Like I summited in the exact same gear that I started in, which is like wow. something I can't even say about like Rainier or Shasta. The only time I've ever yeah. summited in the same gear I started was Mount Hood where I did the whole thing in my, just my underwear. I need a little bit more for Denali. I mean, I put on, when I got to the top of the Kiltnahorn and was about to traverse the ridge, like I stopped and I put on like a big parka because I was just really worried about falling at that point and like having like zero clothing on and laying on the snow <laughs> and injuring myself. So I put on the big parka, but I was hot. Like I could have totally got away with just like, yeah, the wow. hoodie top mittens and like, yeah, tights. Like it would have been, you know, I still hauled like I had like a yeah. shell pants. I had down shorts. What else did I have? I had like a really heavy buff. Why do I down had... shorts exist? Like, I feel like if you need shorts, you don't need them to be down. Like, I'm confused yeah, no, that's, by this. It's, Sorry. It's, it's, a really, it's a really good question. It's so you can, they're full zip. And so you can just okay. put them on and not take your ski boots off. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. No, I didn't know why they existed until I was shopping for this effort and like, I initially bought a pair of down pants and they were just really heavy. And they, a lot of it was just redundant with the ski boots and like heavy ski socks. And so, yeah, no, instead I got a pair of down shorts, which are just like way more packable. They're way lighter. And like, I mean, I don't know, like the bit of your leg between the top of your ski boots and your knee that's like exposed by the down shorts. Like, I mean, I, that it's not an area I could see getting very cold. Um, right. So small yeah, area, yeah, yeah. Okay, small area. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
No, I wonder too why the hell those existed, but right. no, they're pretty cool. Um, yeah. So what was the temperature yeah. up there on the summit then? Do you know? Because I always forecasted Nolly being like so frigid. Yeah. So forecasted, I think it was like negative 10 to negative 20 was the high. Okay. Um, All right. But yeah, you're, the, the sun is just like the yeah. sun. It was like very sunny. The sun was just beating on me. Radiant. And I was moving as obviously as fast as I could, but you're like- moving, yeah. You're limited by you can't move as fast because of the altitude, so you can't get right. as warm. Yeah, I think it was, it, and it, like the wind was like it was like perfect. It was like just like barely a breath of wind. Pretty yeah, crazy up there. So. Sounds like a perfect conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was really lucky. Yeah, yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking all about Denali. It was really fascinating to hear. Of course, yeah. My my pleasure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, right. It's a good it's a good route. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Awesome. Thanks again, Jack, for coming on the show. You can read the updated Denali history as well as check out all of Jack's numerous FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com. Follow his adventures on Instagram at Jack Kenzel. Thanks again to Merrill Test Lab for supporting the show. Be sure to check out their new Skyfire 2 shoe at merrill.com.